I used to wake up at night, my wife will tell you, I'd wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning and get up and go sit down thinking, could it have happened this way? What did we not do? Do we need to do this? We tried everything you could think of. So to say that we, we didn't try to solve the case is totally wrong. But we didn't have the things to work with back then that they have now. It's for like DNA and certain things like that. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast, The Case Against Yen Soaring, A New Verdict. Joining me again today is Judge Ralph Gies Rube. Hello, Ralph. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Of course, I also talked about blood and DNA with all my interview partners. In 1990, at the time of the trial against Yen Suring, for example, there was only serology and no DNA analysis yet. And of course, I also asked what my interview partners thought about whether Yen's could be convicted again today against the background of this evidence or lack of evidence. Best-selling author John Grisham is quite clear in his position on the Soaring case. No, I don't think he would be convicted for several reasons. If he were to go on trial again, first of all, the trial would be moved to another jurisdiction out of the county where the murders occurred. Yens would have a much, much better defense team, and he has more proof now than he had then. Uh, there's more proof involving the bloodstains, who the, who the blood belonged to. There's now DNA testing, which was not available back then. Uh, so, and, you know, Yens is innocent, okay? So you start off with the fact that he's innocent, and you give him a much better defense lawyer with DNA testing, and I think there's no way Yens would be convicted today. Ralph, the absence of blood from the crime scene does not mean that a defendant was not present at the scene. So Yens Soaring could well have been there. Exactly. There's no film you could go by and definitively state that there must be blood from the perpetrator found at the crime scene. That is, from Yens. You can definitely not say that he was not at the crime scene, but there is one fact one must evaluate. Considering the way in which the Hasems were killed, and also the physical altercations involved, it would be obvious that one could have found some clear forensic evidence from the perpetrator or perpetrators if there was more than one. Forensic scientists were able to determine that there was type O blood at the crime scene. The only thing is that almost 40 or 45 percent of the population have type O blood. Therefore, no conclusions can be drawn about Yen Soaring. In his closing argument, the prosecutor points out 26 times that Soaring's blood type was found at the crime scene. Some trial observers have interpreted this as a kind of jury manipulation. Of course, you can't put it that way, but you have to say it doesn't exclude him. But that's all it does. Investigator Chuck Reed says DNA evidence found at the scene rules that out, which is also consistent with Thomas McClintock's account. And the evidence now that comes out, I've kind of looked back from 2016 when the DNA came out that went thinking, said, well, maybe, Chuck, maybe you were right. Because the DNA now states that and shows that uh, the O-type blood that was found at the crime scene that Jens was convicted of doesn't belong to him. Want to learn more about Jens Sering and the Hazel murders? 
Chuck Reed, the leading investigator at the time, has compiled exclusive material for you and commented on it. Previously unpublished evidence, excerpts from trial files in Soering's diary, as well as explosive lab results. Get his report at www.soering-case.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. It's also essential for our listeners to know that in 1990, there was only serology, that is, blood tying test results. There were four blood types found at the scene, including Jens Sering's type O blood. 40 or 45% of the world's population has that blood type. A peculiarity in the case is that forensic scientist Elmer Gist Jr. testified that the blood type O samples were all used up during the serological tests. Later, it turned out that this statement by Elmer Gist was false. I don't know whether this is perjury in the legal sense. You can judge that better than I can. The fact is that there were still these blood samples which were examined 19 years later. The question I ask myself is about the motive for such a false statement. Why would the witness you mentioned do such a thing? He has no vested interest at all. I can't understand why he would say something like that against his better knowledge. I would have to know the background against which this happened. What is true in any case is that the prosecutor's reference, the way he conveyed the information to the jury, is not entirely fair. Basically, with 40-45% to 45 of the world's population having that blood type, that has no relevance at all for drawing any conclusions about Jens Soaring. Within the procedural framework, though, it wasn't an infraction. Legally, he could present the information that way. It's a prosecutorial tactic. But it's not right. It's not fair. Or let's say, not procedurally fair. Ultimately, it is a matter of making it clear to the legally uneducated layman on the jury what the actual percentages are. Of course, it is okay to say. We found type O blood at the crime scene. We can rule out that this type O blood is attributable to Elizabeth or her parents. We cannot exclude that this blood is attributable to Jens. You can say that, but you also have to say what the percentages are. So there too, neutrality must be maintained. The samples of type O blood, which Elmer Gist claimed had been used up, exist and were later examined for DNA. Jens Soering was excluded as the source of the type O blood samples. In a newspaper interview, a lawyer mentions her suspicion that these samples could have been mixed or contaminated. Yes, that is one thing only forensic experts can clarify. This is not a legal question. No judge can say anything about it conclusively either. If I understand correctly, there are different views and assessments. And yes, an independent expert opinion would have to be obtained. And if the results were clear, then, of course, there would be some clues. Also, for a possible proof of innocence. But that would have to be really clear among the experts. When I started back, I believe, in 2017, when I was contacted to look at this, um, since I've been doing forensic DNA analysis since 1990s, the first thing I promised myself was to provide an unbiased scientific opinion. Again, I don't have anything to lose or gain in this. 
but just to make an observation and based on my training and experience, um, I came to certain conclusions. It may not fit with yours or someone else's, and that's okay, they have an opinion, but what's frustrating for me as far as I'm aware is I just went back to uh, DFS in Richmond, I think at the beginning of this year, and looked at pretty much all the data again, and it still supported uh, my interpretation that they're all single source samples, meaning one person contributed to a given sample. Now, I think one person, um, and I'm not positive about this, but I think one person has said, well, you know, you have, for lack of a better word, naked DNA in your home. And if blood is spilt on an area that has some of that DNA, you could have a mixture. You're not going to see that in sero serological testing, but you'll see it in the DNA. And again, when you go back to this, none of these suggest a mixture. In fact, expert opinions were prepared in 2017 and 2022, first by Dr. Moses Sharnfield of George Washington University, and then by Dr. Thomas McClintock of Liberty University, one of the 15 most eminent DNA experts in the United States. They examined the serology and DNA test results and concluded that these samples were not mixed or contaminated. From their point of view, the results indicate the presence of two unidentified men at the crime scene who have different genetic profiles than Jens Soaring. Sharnfield passed away in 2021. One year later, in 2022, Dr. McClintock tested the raw DNA data and again confirmed that there was no mixing or contamination. And I met the guy too at Liberty University in Lynchburg. It was really fascinating to be in his lab. He did re-examinations of the samples found at the crime scene. I looked at the serological data with the idea that the DNA is going to tell you everything that you really need to know. Um, in the old days where serology was really significant, it was the only thing that we had. So when I looked at the serology and the analyst has passed and um, you know I could go through the document uh, and it does show different blood types. Yin's, of course, was not present. And, you know, when you start to look at the blood groups, there's only A, B, O, and AB. I mean, if you were a prosecutor and you said, Yin's is O, the evidence is O, it's got to be him. Well, as a defense attorney, I would go back and say, but when you look at the DNA, it's definitely not Yen's, it's someone else's. So again, you and I could be type O, but our DNA profile is going to be distinct enough to separate you from me. What I also found fascinating and highly informative was that Dr. McClintock obtained an identical model of the car of the night of the crime and examined it with his students. That is, they spread blood on the carpets in the car and tested whether it was really possible to find these tiny blood splashes with luminol testing. And it was clear that luminol testing brings everything to light. So even pinhead-sized splashes are still detectable for a long time. 
there was the statement from Elizabeth that she had cleaned the rental car with Coca-Cola. He also did that with his students and saw if Coke really destroyed everything. And the result was relatively silly, as he tells me. It was clear that it didn't work. I thought it was interesting how he was addressing these issues with his students and looking into them. It should also be mentioned at this point that there is another procedural error here, insofar as the court did not have full expert support. In Germany, the court would ultimately have entrusted a forensic pathologist with all these questions, and the judges would ask the expert precisely about this in the proceedings. Is it possible to cover up traces of blood with Coca-Cola? Is it possible that luminol would fail to detect blood if the luminol use was preceded by intensive cleaning? And if so, to what extent, or if not, why not? If all these questions had been posed to a medical expert or serological expert, the corresponding contradictions would have been clarified, and it would have been obvious that Elizabeth's statement about Coca-Cola simply could not be true. One would thus have had a further component to evaluate her statement as not credible, but none of that happened. However, to take that up again today does not lead to an ex post facto acquittal. I did receive the photos of the, the crime scene, and they were pretty horrific. Uh, but you would think that much blood, that much fighting that had to have gone on, or at least you know, trying to um, you know, attack a person at one end of the house versus the other end of the house, it looks like more than one person had to be there to do the killings. Some of the other information that, I, that I've looked at, other data is just um, sock prints. They don't seem to match um, yens. So I just, I come up empty with trying to see if yens was there or not. At this point, I have no data that suggests that he was present or that he committed any of these crimes. Ralph, what role do bloodstains play in a murder trial, particularly in the Hasem case, for example? Dr. McClintock described to me in detail that no matter where we walk and stand, we always leave skin flakes and secretions. He also told me that this has nothing to do with whether people are clean or not, but that it's quite normal for people to exude traces of DNA constantly. Dr. McClintock said that it's almost impossible to stay in a house for an hour without leaving a trace, especially if there is a violent fight where the participants roll through the blood and wipe the blood away afterward. When such crimes are investigated today, you often see men and women dressed in white coveralls getting out of cars and walking to the crime scene. There, they secure all possible traces, photograph everything, and take samples. These are then extensively examined in the local forensic lab and, if possible, trace back to the perpetrator. Also, they look for DNA matches. But at the time of the crime in the 1980s, evidence gathering was simply not as professional as it is today. You can definitely say that if this crime had taken place at the same place today, we would definitely know who the murderer of Derek and Nancy Hasem was. And that's part of the investigation, is looking at the crime scene and figuring out who was there. Uh, 
and who may be capable of, of this and who may not be capable of this. And Ricky and I was in the office, and when he walked in, that's when it hit me. I looked at him, and I said, I said, this is no way this kid did that kind of damage and come out unscathed. So I had my doubts then. Then when Ricky and I interviewed him, I, I kind of played the good guy, and Ricky was the bad guy on this one. But I told him then, I said, I'm 99% sure you didn't do this, but it's, it's just that 1%. We just need your footprints and your, you to cooperate with us to prove, uh, to give me that 1% to make 100% that I think that you're innocent. But um, he said, well, to make a long story short, he said, well, I'll call you all back next week. My professional and personal opinion was that I just don't think, I can't say that he wasn't there, but I, as far as leaving any evidence, physical evidence, the O-type blood now says the DNA says it's not his. So none of his, that any of his fingerprints wasn't found there. Now, naturally, Elizabeth's was, but then they go back and say, well, she lived there. But at the time, she was living in, at UVA, but she'd come in. The, the vodka bottle was found next to her in an area next to her dad with her fingerprints on it. it had that, uh, it was one little small speck of B-type blood that was found on a dishcloth in the kitchen hanging, and that's where Miss Hasem was found. And the majority of the conviction on Yans was, was pushed the fact of it, the O-type blood was found, which he has O-type. But then I try to tell everybody that almost half the people in the country, around 45% have O-type blood. I have it. But only 10% of the people have B-type blood. The last statement we've heard about the evidence, or lack of evidence, of Jens's presence at the scene, Chuck Reed sees that very clearly, right? For him, it's clear that Jens has burdened himself with guilt, moral guilt, that is. But the idea that he was not at the scene of the crime, now that's something that can be discussed controversially. Yes, so that's certainly an impression he has which is based on the overall impression he got from his investigation. But it's not based on the forensic evidence. And this is a completely different point, which we will discuss later. Does the idea that somebody must overcome his inhibition to be capable of such an act in the first place constitute reasonable doubt? And I think this whole context reflects Chuck Reed's impression that this must have been a gang. Who does that kind of thing? and the extent of devastation and brutality. But just based on what could be forensically determined, you can't say for sure one way or the other. Today, this issue would have been settled relatively quickly. Chuck Reed also told me that the crime occurred during times of racial tensions, and there was gang activity back then. On the other hand, gangs were uncommon in that particular type of neighborhood. Plus, there was no evidence of a burglary or robbery. Yes. But we must always look at the big picture. Some aspects cast doubt on the idea that the crime might have been committed by a gang. Nothing was stolen. People don't just invite a gang into their homes or even eat and drink with them. Plus, the fact that Nancy Hasem was dressed in a bathrobe suggests a considerable degree of familiarity. So you must always look at the big picture. Sure, everyone has an opinion which then gets entrenched in his mind. But based solely on the forensic evidence, one can imagine all kinds of scenarios. Okay, so that's your take on this matter. Of course, you can look at it with some skepticism, but actually, 
Chuck Reed mentioned exactly the same thing to me. It was purely about his first impression when he saw the bodies and all the blood. On closer inspection, when the whole house was examined, he also found all the other things, such as the clothes. And then it was also clear to him that of course it wasn't a gang and that the circumstances pointed to a closer family connection. So in Virginia, there's this pretty extraordinary rule, the 21-day rule. That means you can only present new evidence within 21 days after the sentencing phase of the trial. Only within that period would Yen Suring have had the opportunity to present something new to the court. But at that time, there were no DNA tests, so he didn't really stand a chance. How would you rate that in comparison to Germany? There is a difference. First of all, there is a time limit on legal remedies and appeals here as well. For example, under German law, if I want to appeal a life sentence verdict, I only have one week to do so. I have to file an appeal within one week through a defense attorney or on the record of the court office. If I don't do that, the sentence is final and then it's over. It doesn't matter whether there were procedural errors or not. I am then precluded from appealing if I wait longer than one week. But if new facts come to light, and that is the case with the DNA, because it did not exist in 1985 or even in 1990, then we have the possibility to file a motion for a retrial. And then a subsequent acquittal can also occur on that basis. So that's the difference with Virginia. A rather significant and serious difference when it boils down to whether someone remains incarcerated for life. And once a prosecutor has arrested someone for a crime, that shows he thinks he did it, supposedly. And once he has convicted that person, he puts that case aside. If, in fact, later someone shows him that he had the wrong person, he has now for years allowed the real murderer to be out in the public. And the prosecutor in Virginia, this is not the same in every state, but in Virginia, both the prosecutor and the sheriff are elected. So they really do not want to find that they made this huge mistake and then fail to be elected the next time their term comes around. They're really vested in having made the right decision. Another topic. When it comes to blood, and of course, DNA samples, evidence is stored in an evidence locker. For decades, anyone filing a formal request could go in there and touch the evidence, without gloves, without protection. I too have had these things in my hand, and among other things, I was allowed to handle a bloody lampshade without gloves. So now my DNA is on that lampshade. Would this be conceivable in Germany? In Germany, we have always been more careful about that. That is, evidence items are handled with care at appropriate room and cooling temperatures. But you must know that at the time when the crime was committed, the serological examinations had been completed. Nobody expected that with the advancement of science, there would be even more precise examination methods at some point like DNA. I believe that today, the authorities in Virginia would be much more careful as well. But as recently as three months ago, when I was in Bedford County, there was no logbook where I had to sign in and out. 
and there were no regulations that I had to protect myself with gloves. The boxes were placed in front of me, and I was allowed to access, research, photograph, and touch everything. Someone must have decided that the evidence in question was unsuitable for further examinations. Probably, this is what happened. I don't know. There was also a report in the American media last summer which said that there would be logbooks kept in Bedford County from now on. But just seven days before that, I held certain pieces of evidence in my hands and could testify that there were no logbooks. I also spoke with an employee in the archive who told me that these evidence items would be archived forever, even if the prisoner died. If you think about it, it doesn't make sense for them to be kept permanently if there is no possibility of a new investigation. Because even if the evidence is DNA tested now, you need the countersamples of all the people who touched the evidence over the last 30 or 40 years, otherwise DNA tests would be pointless. If 500 people had an object in their hands, you need 500 countersamples to eliminate them as possible sources of the DNA on the evidence. And that is inconceivable after decades. I think that's true. I mean, I think there was certainly um, evidence hard evidence late in the case that pointed to others' involvement with the murders and that exonerated Jens. I don't think that he, you know, the fact that he tried to stir up public sentiment was really what clinched it for him in the end. I think what was important was that there was increasing doubt about his guilt and it had a lot to do with the forensics of the case. I think that's very much the case. I think he was really persistent. I think uh, he's a remarkable human being. He hung in there. He certainly had times when he was depressed, upset by how things were going, but he never gave up, and he was always thinking. And in the end, sadly, it was Yen's idea of what, what needed to be done, the analysis that needed to be done of the blood samples that were taken that freed him. You know, that was a really important discovery that the state didn't make. You would like to think that prosecutors would be looking, as DNA became increasingly reliable, at what the samples, what the blood samples told. This was the fourth episode of our podcast series, The Case Against Jen Soaring, A New Verdict. We discussed the findings on DNA expert verdicts and the latest DNA investigations in the Yen Soaring case from 2022. In the next episode, it's all about forensic methods, junk science, and probably the most famous piece of evidence in the Yen Soaring case, the bloody sock print LR3. Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers.